together. Second Kings chapter 2. Last week we started this series called Strange Encounters. And the idea behind it is that sometimes we come to the Bible with a certain expectation. And when we read the Bible, the expectation we have is that it will be something encouraging and it will be something that will be light and that it will be safe and sanitary. You know, I mean, local uh, Christian radio stations, that's their advertisement, safe for the whole family. And we understand what that means, but we expect a certain thing when we read the Bible. And as Frederick Bucher pointed out last week when we talked about this, that if you read the Bible without any kind of idea of what you expect to see, that sometimes what you see is surprising. In fact, the end of that quote that I read last week says this, it's too bad because if you really listen, there is no telling what you may hear. Now, if you really listen, now that's true all the time, by the way, uh, we were having a discussion in our Wednesday night Bible study about the fact that sometimes I heard a discussion, overheard it, about sometimes you'll read the same passage of scripture again and again and again and again, and then you'll go back and read it. And for some reason, when you go back and read it, you're like, wow. I've never seen that there before. Anybody ever had that experience? As the Holy Spirit kind of opens your eyes, as God reveals something new to you that was always there, you just saw it for the first time. That's true in that sense. But it's also true in the sense that sometimes the Bible will absolutely surprise you. So I'm going to read you three verses from the end of 2 Kings chapter 2. And perhaps you've heard these verses before. Perhaps you've read them many times. But for some people... They hear these verses and they're like, I don't remember that before. It says this, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel and he was walking up the path. Some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, chanting, go up, baldy, go up, baldy. So the prophet Elisha turned and explained to them the love of God and gave them a hug. And they all walked away happy. Is that what happens? That's not what happens. He turned around, looked at them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the children. From there, Elisha went to Mount Carmel, and then he returned to Samaria. It fascinating to me is the nonchalant way he just walks away. How many of you have never read that before or seen that? Okay, so like some people are like, I don't want to admit this in church. And so they're like here, right? Like it's not when we come across a lot. Yet here's a story of Elisha walking what it seems like down the road and some young boys. Now, the word, there's lots of debate about what the word is there that means. And sometimes, some of you may have a version of the Bible, a translation of the Bible that translates that youth or youths. And uh, a lot of people, when we hear that, we immediately think like late teens, 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, like a, like a, a group of 19-year-olds out there really giving it to the prophet about his baldness, Right? This word most frequently was used of 10, 11, and 12-year-old boys. So young boys. And they make fun of the fact that he has no hair. That he is, as is politically correct these days, a follically challenged. Right? And he, in return, curses them 
And I think it is fascinating that it says two mama bears, female bears, come out of the woods and maul them. Now, just a word on the word maul. It doesn't necessarily mean kill, but it means severely damage. Anybody else read that and go, what? Like, why is that in here? Like, you know, there's a lot, I've talked about this before that they didn't have as much writing space as we do. Like, they didn't have word processors, obviously, where they could delete and they didn't have printer machines. Like, they were very economical in the stories they told and the words they used. And you're wondering to yourself, why in the world is there a story about female bears mauling 42 young boys because a prophet got mad about being made fun of? Isn't that what it seems to be there? Well, it is sort of that. But one of the things that we have to do, and what we're going to do today, is examine what's really happening here. And here's just a phrase. I think I've said this before, but it's been a while, and we haven't focused on it in a while. Is that you cannot fully understand a text without understanding the context. Now, here's what I mean. You can't fully understand. Now, there are some scriptures in the Bible that stand alone and can be understood at one level for sure without the full context. You understand what a context, what's happening around it, what the rest of the verses around it say, what's happening in history. For instance, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's easy to understand outside of the context. But if you understand the context, there are deeper levels of meaning, that it's a meeting with Nicodemus. It's with Nicodemus trying to figure out if Jesus is the one, that it's about being born again and about salvation coming. And you begin to get into the layers of what's happening and the Jewish context in which it happened and the fight that was going on between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all that was there. You begin to get a deeper understanding of it. It's also dangerous to assume you understand what a text means without understanding the context. So you end up with people misinterpreting texts like Philippians chapter 4 verse 13. Anybody, what's that verse? Anybody know that one? Some of you have it in your house up on a wall, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I remember when I was a senior in high school, it was the only year I played high school football, we would say that before we ran out onto the football field as if to say, we can win this game. Because Christ is with us, which assumes that Christ is what? Not with the other team, because they're the enemy, right? But if you understand the context of what's happening in chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul is describing all of the bad places he's been, all the good places he's been. In fact, he says right before that, I have learned to be content whatever circumstances I am in. And so I can be all things. It's not I can bulk up and do a task. It is I can withstand and be a part of and be content in whatever situation I have because Christ is with me. And so when we read this story of young boys being mauled by bears... We have to understand what's happening with the context of this story. By the way, when I said the name Elisha, he's probably not the first prophet you think of when you think of prophets of Israel. In fact, the first prophet you think of is probably somebody whose name is very similar, right? What's his name? Elijah, right? And so we have here a story about Elisha immediately following the death of Elijah. You ever heard the phrase, you don't want to be the man that follows the man, you want to be the man that follows the man that follows the man? Like in coaching circles, you don't want to be the man following Nick Saban at Alabama. 
Because it's never going to be good enough. You want to be the man that follows Nick Saban, following him. The guy that follows Nick Saban, that's who you want to follow. Because after he fails, then you get an actual shot. Right? Well, can I tell you who the man is in the history of the prophets of Israel? It's Elijah. Do you remember the transfiguration, that kind of strange story in the New Testament that could be part of this series, but we talk about it a little more frequently? The transfiguration, Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's got three of his disciples with him, and he gets up on the mountain. He has a meeting, and he meets with who? Moses and the law and the prophets is who he meets with. Moses, who represents the law, Elijah, that represents the prophets, they held a seat at the Passover meal for Elijah to return before the Messiah were to come. Remember when Jesus is there and he says, who do people say that I am? Do you remember that one of the people they said that he was, was Elijah. You're the one that's come back. And so when you talk about the prophets of Israel, there are lots of great prophets of Israel. Isaiah, Jeremiah. But the one that if you were to say, we're going to rank the prophets of Israel according to the people that were living and the people that followed after, they would say number one is Elijah. And we think about the context of what's happening here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So back to the beginning of this chapter. This is 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. And it said, The time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, and Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. So here's what's happening. The time has come for Elijah to go to be with the Lord. Now, it's strange the way it says that, right? Because... Sometimes it will talk about returning to the Father. Sometimes it will talk about going to the ground. Sometimes it will use those phrases, ascending into heaven. But here, it specifically says that God is going to take him in a whirlwind. And the way he dies is not really dying. He just is no more. And so we have this moment of transition happening in 2 Kings chapter 2, and the nation is concerned about what is happening. I mean, we talk about Elijah, we talk about a prophet who had made food continually appear without needing to refill it for a widow that was desperate for food. We're talking about a, a man who raised from the dead the first Example in scripture of someone raising someone from the dead. He raised the widow's son from the dead to help to continue to provide for her. We're talking about a man who stared down the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and called fire from heaven and heaven sent fire. God responded who stood up to perhaps the most evil king and queen that Israel had ever known. We're talking about a great man of God. And when Elijah is off the scene, people are going to want to know, What's next? Now what? Is God done with us? Who will speak for the Lord? How will we know? Will it be someone like Elijah? Will it be someone not as good as Elijah? Who will be next? And the Lord had already, through the prophet Elijah, anointed the one that would be. And his name was Elisha. In 1 Kings, there's a moment when Elisha is plowing with his oxen. God calls him. 
to follow and to serve and to learn from Elijah. Some of my favorite stories of the entire Old Testament. Because Elisha, when he receives the call of God, he tears down the wood of his plow and builds a fire and barbecues the oxen for the neighborhood on the fire. He literally burned up everything he needed to work and said, I have put my life in the past and I'm following the Lord. God had already told him that he was the one, but... I don't know about you, even there are times in my life when I know the calling of God on my life. I know what God wants me to do when it comes to my family, when it comes to this church, when it comes to my walk with the Lord, when it comes to sharing my faith, when it comes to forgiving people, when it comes to doing what I'm supposed to do. There are times when, even though I know that's what I'm supposed to do, and I know God has called me to do it, that I'm not always as confident as I need to be in doing it. And I believe what is happening in chapter 2 is God confirming to Elisha, to the townspeople, and to his critics that he is God's man. And so it starts with Elijah. Look at verse 8. Elijah took his mantle rolled it up. That would have been what draped around his neck when you think about an address of that time frame. It would have been around his neck. Rolled it up, almost like a towel. Struck the water. He and Elisha are together by themselves. The men are watching them as they go. Then the two of them crossed over on dry ground. So he takes his mantle, rolls it up, whips the water, the water parts, and they walk on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken from you. This is a tender moment. This is a farewell moment. This is a how can I help you. This is an important moment. And Elijah answers, let me inherit two shares of your spirit. In other words, I want God to work twice as much through me as he worked through you. I want God's blessing on my life twice as much as it was on yours. And Elijah says, you have asked for something difficult. If you see me being taken away from you, you will have it. If not, you won't. Verse 11. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into the heavens in a whirlwind. And as Elisha watched, he kept crying out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. That's a strange expression and nobody's really sure what's happening there. But we know that Elisha is grieving over the loss of his mentor and his friend and his father figure in the faith. And so in this moment, as we have here, they're wondering what now. And Elisha, although he has been promised by the Lord that this is who he is, this is what he's supposed to happen, this is what's going to happen in his life, that he is the next man up. I sense that there's some worry concern about that, about his ability to fulfill the calling that God has placed on his life. And so what happens is over the next few verses through the end of chapter two is God performs three miracles and the people perform one search. And by the time you get to the end of this chapter, there is no doubt that Elisha is God's man. The first miracle that we see happens immediately after this. 
It starts at the end of verse 12, actually, which if in my Bible is split into two different sections, but it's the same verse. It says, when he could see him no longer, that is, when he could see Elijah no longer, he took hold of his own clothes, tore them in two. In other words, he ripped his own clothes. He says that I am done with this life. There is a new life ahead. There is a mourning that is happening. And that was a typical Jewish mourning stature. So he mourns over the loss of Elijah. Verse 13. But then this is important. He picked up to the mantle that had fallen off Elijah. I want you to notice something very quickly. He doesn't immediately put it on. He goes back and stood on the bank of the Jordan River that they had just crossed on dry land. He took the mantle Elijah had dropped. He struck the water. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? The other way to answer that question is, are you going to work through me like you have worked through Elijah? God, are you still there? God, are you still with us? God, are you still working? God, are you still alive? And he struck the water himself. The emphasis there is that Elisha is the one that struck it. And it parted to the right and the left. And Elisha crossed over. Now, we're going to stop just there for a second. We're going to move to the next verse very quickly. But think about this. Why was this such an important moment for Elisha? He takes the mantle that was Elijah's. He whips the water just like Elijah did. He apparently does that twice, so there's some confusion about the way it's structured in the original language. But the second time, if he does it twice, he hits it. The water splits just as it had before, and he walks through it on dry land. What's the importance of that? It's God confirming, I am with you like I was with Elijah. He performs the exact same miracle. He performs the exact same task. He sees God work through him in the way that God had worked through his mentor. It is one way to see that God is the one that is the power behind the miracle, that is the power behind the service, that is the power behind the movement of God across this world, and his tools are interchangeable. And while Elijah was a great man, he was a great man because God had used him. And he says to Elisha, I will use you in the exact same way that I used Elijah. You even did the same miracle. In fact, look at what the sons of the prophet says in verse 16. The sons of the prophet said to Elisha. Oh, wait, sorry. Go to the back before. I got ahead of myself. Verse 15. When the sons of the prophets from Jericho who were observing saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. What's the purpose of the first miracle in this passage? It's simply this. is to show that the God that was with Elisha is the same God with the same power that had always been there. So Elisha is moving in this direction, wondering if God's still going to move in this day and age, if God's still going to move in the way that he has in the past. In this moment, God says, I'm here, I'm the same, and my power will continue. He gets back across, and they're like, that's great. Hey, but real quickly, can we make sure Elijah's not around? It seems like kind of a crazy thing. They say... Hey, we, we got 40. Let's go search for him. And, and Elijah's like, you don't need to search for him. Trust me, God's taken him. He's gone. Well, we, we just like to make sure. 
And he says, no, you don't need to. And it says after they had embarrassed him or made him feel bad, it's kind of a weird construction. After they had convinced him through this, he says, go find, search for him, but you won't find him. And they come back and they say he's gone. And so the validation there is this is God's new man. And so God has confirmed to Elisha that he is the new man and to these men who were looking to make sure Elijah was gone that he is the new man. And then he performs a second miracle. I believe the first one primarily was for Elijah, I mean Elisha, and the men that would follow him. The second miracle is for people that were looking for God's movement in their lives. Verse 19 says, The men of the city said to Elisha, so he comes back, and they say, My Lord, we've heard you can do some things. You can see that even though our city's location is good, the water is bad and the land unfruitful. The word literally there is, the land has many miscarriages. It means that it cannot grow crops or that they'll begin to grow and then they will not sustain. And as a result, we can't build what God wants us to build here, what we feel we need to build. Verse 20 is an interesting thing. He says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. The original language, the emphasis is on the word new. He's going to work in a new way through a new man to build a new city. And he says, bring me something new. The men of Jericho, the prophets, the men who would affirm that they believed in God and wanted to follow and wanted to see Elisha. These men believed Elisha could do something about it. They wouldn't have brought it to him. And so Elisha went out to the spring, threw salt in it and said, this is what the Lord says. I have healed the water and no longer will death or unfruitfulness result from it. Therefore, the water still remains healthy today according to the word that Elisha spoke. So he says, okay, God is still moving. God is still using me. And I've proven that to Elisha and I've proven it to the prophets that will serve underneath them. Now it's time to prove it to those that are supporting and those that are around. This is my man. And so the water that is bad, bring me a new bowl. I'm doing a new work. It is something new. And he puts salt in it, takes the salt, puts it in the water, and it cleanses it. Now there are people say, will that do it normally? No. In fact, some people think there are actually two miracles in this, that the salt went in to, to take away whatever was bad in the water, and then they had to desalinate. They had to take the salt out of the water, which would have been another miracle. So there's a miracle within a miracle. But the point is, God says that I am using Elisha to do some of the same things that I've done before. I am the same God And there is the same blessing that comes from following me. So you have, in chapter 2 of 2 Kings, Elisha being confirmed as the new man to Elisha. Elisha being confirmed as the new man to the prophets that would follow him. Elisha being confirmed to the allies and those that wanted to follow the Lord in the midst of that. And then we get to the story that we read at the beginning. From there... See the importance of the context? Transition time. God is in the midst of moving. God is confirming a new prophet that will be someone that the people will follow and hear from and will do miraculous things in their presence. And God confirms that and confirms that and confirms that. But there's one group out there that hasn't been confirmed that this is God's man. And that is those that would oppose God and his prophet. 
as he moves on from there to Bethel. Bethel, by the way, would have been one of the leading spots of idolatrous worship in Israel at this time. There would have been poles and worship sites set up to other gods throughout. And he's walking up the path to Bethel. Some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him. Now, a couple of things about that. We, I said earlier, this is probably 10, 11, 12-year-old boys. That's the picture that we get. But there's also the reality that this is probably not a small group of boys. A couple of reasons. How many does it say were mauled at the end of this? 42. Let me ask you just a quick question. If you were in a group of people and two bears suddenly emerged, what are the people going to do? They're going to run. Okay? And so this is not, this is speculation, but it's well-founded speculation because every commentary I had read about mentioned this. If there were 42 that got caught, how many got away? A lot. The old rule is when it comes to being chased by a bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You got to be faster than the other person being chased by the bear. Right? And so 42 of them got caught. That means other guys wait. So there's this idea that even some describe that there may have been a couple of hundred boys confronting him on the road. Second thing, what are they shouting at him? Go up baldy. All right, we focus on the baldy part because some people are particularly sensitive about that area maybe, right? Go up baldy, right? But the first part of that is a phrase that when it understood in light of what Elijah did and what it was described that Elijah did, that he was taken up, it can be taken as, why don't you join Elijah? Go up like Elijah. Right? Like, get on out of here. Get dead. Get out. So I want you to picture instead of a group of 20, 10-year-olds out there, go up, baldy, you bald man. Right? That's not the picture. The picture is a group of kids. I don't want to run. It is kids. that are saying, your time is done. You're not Elijah. Why don't you end your life and go with Elijah? Or we may end it for you. Now, I know you say, well, it just says go up baldy. Part of the reason they talk about him being bald is because Elijah was talked about being hairy. So we're not sure if he actually was bald or he just had a short haircut when compared to Elijah. Going up baldy, there are even some that think that there's some commentaries that talk about that certain prophets had a marking that they would shave part of their head. And so there could be a direct reference to the fact that he was a prophet. So when you think about this scene, it very easily could have been. And all we have what's in scripture. But when you read it and try to bring the context of that time frame around, it very easily could have been two to three hundred boys shouting that it was time for this guy to die. Could have been a dangerous situation. And so it says he turns to them and he declares basically that God will protect me. It says he calls a curse on them in the name of the Lord. To curse someone in the name of the Lord is to say, I will allow God to fight my battles 
for me. And God sends two mama bears after those boys. Now here's the thing to think about. He's already shown that he's the same God with the same power working through Elisha. Nothing's changed. He's shown to those that follow him and are part of what he's doing that he's the same God with the same blessing. The point that he makes through this incident with the bears and the boys is this, that he is the same God with the same authority working through Elisha. There are lots of scholars, people that, as I read this week, that talked about that because he declared it in the name of the Lord to prove that he was a true prophet, God wanted to show that this was a true prophet. And it says in Scripture, how did you tell a true prophet from a false prophet? If what they predict comes true or what they declare is done. And when he brought the curse on those boys, God validated his man and his prophet. Sometimes with our modern sensibilities, we read stories like this and we cringe or we seem like, how do we, how do we explain that in our culture and our world? One of the things that we have to understand, and this moves into what do we learn from specifically the last part of this, but this entire chapter, what do we learn in the midst of that from this and how do we kind of maneuver in a modern world around it? And the first thing we have to learn from this passage of scripture that we need to see for sure is that we serve a holy God. We serve a holy God. He is not just other than us. He is superior in every way that we could think or imagine. And whatever we could think or imagine does not come close to describing who he is. It's not like he's a better version of humanity. He is something altogether different. And his greatness is something that is incomprehensible to us. We cannot understand it. His infinitude, the fact that he has no limits on him, because we live by measurements and limits and what size we are and how much space we have, he lives outside of limits. He has none. He is other than us. He is a holy and a righteous God, which means his ways are not our ways, and he does not have to explain himself to us or our modern sensibilities. He is in absolute control and he is God. And I think one of the lessons that we learn from this passage that is not just taught here but taught several other places is that we should not treat the things of God lightly, flippantly. We don't treat things of God that are holy and just and set apart, or even our relationship with God or God himself, the name of God. We don't treat that lightly. I mean, Scripture is full of examples of people who treated the name or the character or the reputation of God or themselves as God's followers lightly, and they paid the ultimate price for it. I think about the men walking by the Ark of the Covenant, when it starts to fall off the cart and they touch it and they die. They don't get burned. They don't get a wrist sprain. They die. 
And you say, they're just trying to protect it. But you go back to what was supposed to happen. They weren't carrying it in the way they were supposed to carry it. They were not operating like they were supposed to. They were treating this important, sacred artifact of God with light hands. You think, well, that's Old Testament stuff. You get to Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. And they walk before the elders. They walk before the apostles. And they say, yes, this is what we did. We gave everything to the Lord. And they say... And they die. And then the wife comes in and he says, listen, is this what? Yeah, yeah. And he said, the men that dragged your husband out of here are coming back for you. And she dies. Yes, Jesus loves us more than anyone we can imagine. Yes, God has a plan that is good for us. That is the plan to prosper and to give us a hope and a future. Yes, God cares deeply about us. But God is also a holy, omnipotent God. And we should not treat our relationship with our description of Him lightly in any way. Here's the last thing, and then we're done. This is the overall message of this entire chapter. Is that God is always in control. It's an important transition moment in the life of the nation of Israel. It would not go well for the people of Israel, but the story of God would continue forward. When they worried about what would happen with Elijah, God says, I've already got the plan. It's been set in Moshe. Elisha's been trained. He's ready. My next tool is here. When Isaiah wonders what they're going to do after their king that had ruled well for 50 plus years dies, he goes to the temple to seek the Lord and the Lord shows up and basically says, I am who I am and I am in control. The world in which we live, it's easy to see it at times in our personal lives or the lives of our nation or our world. seems like it is spinning out of control and yet we know the scripture promises he is always in control. There are times in the life of our church, in the life of individuals, in the life of our nation, when we wonder, is God ever going to work again? Why don't we see what we saw before? I think back to the emphasis we had where we said, Lord, we have seen you move in the nations in ages past. Do it again, here and now. And the comfort that we have is the same God that was in control during the time of Elisha with the same power and the same blessing and the same authority is the same God who's in control here and now. And as we've been studying on Wednesday night through the book of Ephesians, The power that he imbued into Elijah and Elisha has been given to us. Resurrection power. The blessing that we have in Christ is immeasurable. That's what it says, immeasurable riches. And the authority that we have been given by Jesus to go into the world and to make disciples. The question that we have is, will we surrender and be willing to be used by a God who's in complete control?
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that you give us wisdom, that you would give an understanding and clarity to those of us in this room, those of us listening at home, about what it is that you called us to do and how we need to do it. Lord, I pray that we would just be people who would be willing to be used completely by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.